In the last uh, couple of sessions, we've been thinking about the whole issue of Christian leadership and, um, and the fact that strong and godly Christian leadership is really crucial in establishing an effective church. That's where Paul goes first in chapter 1. We spent some time thinking about the character of a Christian leader, and then we spent some time thinking about the role of a Christian leader. And we were thinking about the fact that the primary function of a Christian leader really is to teach uh, biblical truth uh, so that both Christian people will grow in their faith and become mature and so that people who are unbelievers will be hearing the gospel and coming to faith in Christ. We based our thoughts last time on verse 9 of chapter 1 which is a summary verse in a way. Paul says there to Titus, a Christian leader must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. This is really very foundational uh, stuff, isn't it? Um, I didn't really feel, like I said, everything that I wanted to say, though, last time. That's, that's very strange. I'm preaching for nearly an hour. But uh, there, there was more to say. And... Uh, I, I, I felt a little bit sort of um, disappointed that I hadn't said everything that I, I wanted to say last time, but uh, we're, we're going to finish off today and say some of the things that I didn't say last time. And uh, it's very convenient for us, uh, when, when we get into chapter 2, the first verse of chapter 2 is, I suppose, another summary verse, there it is for you, where Paul summarises everything that he's been saying in chapter 1. And he says to Titus, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. So there's a very simple verse in the Bible. I want us to spend some time uh, just thinking about that one verse today, uh, this morning. The rest of chapter 2 is very practical. Um, And there's teaching there for all of us. And we're going to get into that over the next few weeks. But I I just want to complete... Uh, some of the things that I wanted to say about teaching. Uh, Very, very simple today. My my main point today, if if you'd like to know the main point at the beginning, is that Christian living or Christian ethics or Christian behaviour, however you want to describe it, is based on and flows from solid theology. That, That is really what I want us to learn together this morning the way that we behave as Christian people what we base our ethical behaviour and standards on flows from and is grounded in sound doctrine Uh, belief affects behaviour and there's no getting away from that what you believe will shape how you live and so Paul says to Titus you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine So I haven't got many slides today, I've just got four. I want to make four points, and they all begin with C. So a good bit of preacher's alliteration for you today. They all begin with C, very easy to remember, and this is the first one. Here we are. This one, first of all, very simply, is a command. Very obvious. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Now why is that? Um, there's lots of books written about church 
and culture and church growth, grand plans, big organization and systems and all these different things you can read. But as Paul encourages Titus to seek out and identify men who by their character and by their ability to communicate truth, gospel truth, are qualified to lead the church of Jesus. The really crucial thing to see is that the Christian church grows, matures, develops by truth being proclaimed. That is the key thing. The Christian church does not grow by violence or coercion or manipulation. Christian ministers are not second-hand car salesmen who are meant to deceive people and lead them up some kind of garden path. The way that the Christian church grows is by persuasive, logical, sound, Christian, biblical teaching. That is the way the church grows. That is the way God has organized and ordained things. People's lives are changed by truth. And this command to teach here is really crucial. The very first priority, we saw this last time a little, is that a Christian leader must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. This is a command. Now, uh, let, let, let me kind of open up some objections for you. Sometimes I think we can fall into a trap, for example, of thinking that Christians reach out to other people by simply living a Christian life. That's how we reach out to people by the gospel. So the argument goes this way. We ought not to be too quick to use words. We mustn't be seen by the outside world as being too preachy. We mustn't be seen as judgmental or condemning. We must embrace uh, everyone and not be too confrontational in, in teaching. What really matters is that people see the way we live. That's how the gospel will be communicated and that's what will cause the church to grow. I think individual Christians can think that. I'm not going to talk about my faith. I'm just going to live a Christian kind of life. And hopefully people will see that and they'll respond to that and that will lead them to understand the gospel. I think it's possible that churches can fall into this trap as well though, that the whole church, for example, fails to teach truth and just falls into a trap of seeking to live it without using words. We'll just try and be nice people and good Christian people and other people will see by our amazing, magnificent and godly lives just what the gospel really means and they'll be drawn into our church by the power and the winsomeness of our lives. How exciting would that be? I'm not sure whether our lives are actually that good sometimes. Sometimes we can fall into this trap. Now, lifestyle is very important. We're going to see that as we go through. And it can be, and it should be, that people who are not believers will see something of a difference in our lives and be impressed rather than unimpressed by the standards of our ethics and our Christian living. But I'm not at all sure that that's how Jesus told his followers to reach people. In fact, it isn't how Jesus 
reached people. Jesus came into this world from heaven. But he didn't come from heaven thinking to himself, I'm just going to live a perfect life and people will see such goodness in my life that they'll be drawn. There's an element of truth in that. But Jesus did not just rely on his life. He used words. He taught people. He gave them content and information for them to think about and consider. Just um, keep your finger in Titus and turn back with me to Matthew chapter 4. This is the very beginning of the Christian gospel. Matthew chapter 4, very early in Jesus' ministry, page 968, if you've got one of the Red Church Bibles. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has been baptised by John the Baptist and then spent nearly six weeks in the desert preparing for his public ministry. And then he settles in the north of the country near Galilee. And that's what it says in Matthew chapter 4 verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now Matthew tells us that this is to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said six or seven hundred years before when he says about Galilee and that whole area in northern Israel he says there and Matthew quotes it verse 16 the people living in darkness the people living in Galilee who live in darkness have seen a great light and those people who lived in the land of the shadow of death a light has dawned on them Isaiah said that six or seven hundred years before Jesus was born. Just look with me at what verse 17 says. A great light has dawned on these people. And Matthew tells in verse 17, from that time on, Jesus began to do what? Are you all awake? What did he do? He preached. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. He used words. He opened his mouth and spoke. And what a connection that is. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. What a connection that is. Light has dawned on this people. How did it dawn? It dawned on them when Jesus opened his mouth and used words. The light dawning was as a result of him preaching. There's content. What's interesting is that Paul says exactly the same thing in Titus chapter 1 and verse 3. At his appointed season, God brought his word to light. How? Through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. Light is dawning in God's world. How does it dawn? It dawns because God has commanded me to preach, to open my mouth and use words. There's a connection between the proclamation of truth and light coming. That's what happened 
when Jesus came, that's exactly what Paul says here. No wonder he says, Titus, you must teach. Light will dawn, Titus, when you preach. You need to use words, mate. That's what he's saying to him. You need, you, you need to live a godly life, for sure. We'll come back to that. But you need to use words. The gospel is information and illumination. The gospel contains things that we desperately need to know about God and about ourselves. It isn't a vague philosophy thing over here. The gospel has content. Sometimes we can fall into a trap of thinking that what is really crucial in this modern world is social action. If we could just but show that Christianity leads people to compassion and care and to the alleviation of suffering, people would believe the gospel. If we were to go back to Matthew, you don't need to go back there, but if we go back there, the ministry of Jesus included tremendous compassion for those who were sick and needy. But where does Jesus go? Matthew chapter 5, Jesus went up on a mountainside, his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He used words. Compassion for the needy is crucial and important, but it mustn't be confused with the gospel. Actually, the gospel is much, much bigger than social action. Social action says, I want you to be happy now. The gospel says, I want you to be happy in a billion, trillion years from now. What a difference there is. The gospel deals not just with the here and now, but with our eternal destiny. The truth is that our lives, of course, and Jesus' life, did back up what he said. There should clearly be genuine evidence of, of good being done, but it flows from the gospel. Do you know what Jesus' last words to his followers were? According to Matthew, <clears throat> Jesus said to them before he ascended back to heaven, All authority has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them everything I have commanded you. He taught them and told them to go and teach others. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. According to Mark's Gospel, Jesus said to his followers, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. He didn't say go into all the world and live a nice life. He said, go into all the world and tell them things. According to Luke, at the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus said to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And here, according to Paul, the great priority for Titus is to teach people truth. The great priority of Paul is to identify men who can lead and the biggest issue is their ability to communicate truth. The church of Jesus Christ grows and matures and develops through 
the content of the gospel being taught. Let me um, just say this. Within the church then, the great mark of a Christian man or a Christian woman is surely their teachability. Should that not follow? Notice that I didn't say gullibility and I didn't say stupidity or passivity. It is good for us to ask questions and to learn and to grow and to develop. But the great mark of a Christian person is their teachability. Are you listening? That's the question, isn't it, on the base of this. If the church of Jesus grows through the preaching and proclamation of God's truth, the question for you is, are you listening? Are your ears open? How many times did Jesus say that? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I think there's a second application here as well, though. This is so crucial in our desire to reach out to a lost world. The reality of being sent into a world that really doesn't know what it wants and is often very angry when confronted with truth. Jesus himself came into a world that didn't want him. And isn't it interesting that Jesus said to his followers, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. That's a bad job, isn't it? I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. You will feel like the world will want to tear you to pieces. Does it feel like that sometimes being a Christian? I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Do you know what the miracle is though? That as we do that, trusting in God's power, some of the wolves, by his grace, are converted and become sheep. Isn't that incredible? Doesn't that show that it's his work and not our work? So that's the first point. It's a command. Titus, you must teach. Secondly, it's a contrast. The contrast here is that Paul has been speaking about false teachers. At the end of chapter 1, he's really scathing about men who teach lies, basically. Look at what he says in verse 16. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. You could easily insert the word but at the beginning of chapter 2, because what Paul's doing is making a contrast. There are teachers who will teach false doctrines. But you, Titus, you need to teach what is in accordance with sound doctrine. Don't be like them. Don't dish out lies. Your job, Titus, is to dish out solid food, truth. I think the word sound, it's like got the idea of health, wholesome. It's, it's really nourishing and helpful. You need to teach what's in accordance with wholesome truth. Good leaders will teach wholesome truth which will lead to wholesome living. 
Why is that? Well, the, the truth is that when, when lies are being taught, it will cause damage. Look at um, verse 11. Paul speaks about these false teachers and he says to Titus, they must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. In the same way that healthy teaching will lead to healthy living, false teaching will lead to broken lives, broken homes, families being ruined. Your teaching, Titus, must be sound, not false. And, it, and, it, and it's important, isn't it? This is an application to, to leaders. So I'm, I'm speaking to myself. Isn't it? Do you, know, do you know what the best gift, in a way, that a Christian leader can give to his congregation? The, the best gift that a leader can give is his own holiness. What an awesome responsibility that is. Woe betide a leader who says one thing and does another and strips the gospel of its power. What a challenge. Paul wrote to Timothy just before uh, in the Bible, Titus, in 1 Timothy chapter 4. In fact, let's turn to it. It's 1 Timothy chapter 4. These letters are really great. 1 Timothy chapter 4, page 1193. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. This, this is what Paul said to, a, to Timothy, a different man. He says, Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. It's your number one priority. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. And then he says, watch your life and doctrine closely. Because if you do, you'll save yourself and your hearers. Do you see the connection Paul makes? Watch your life and your doctrine. Both of those things go together. And that's what he's saying to Titus here. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. You need to know the truth. You need to teach the truth. You need to live a life that backs that up. There are all kinds of false teachers everywhere. But you, Titus, you must teach what matches sound doctrine. It's a command and it's a contrast. Is that simple? Okay. Third one. Another C. There's a connection here. There's no clock up there. This is dangerous, this, isn't it? We're okay. I'm going to put my phone there so that I can just see what time it is. Third C then, a connection. The things you must teach must match sound doctrine. Now, in the rest of this chapter... Paul is very practical. Look at verse 2. Teach the older man. Verse 3. Teach the older women. Verse 6. Encourage the young man. Verse 9. Teach slaves. All the way through this chapter is intensely practical. You must teach people 
how to live practically in this world and the teaching that you give practically must match sound doctrine. So the connection that he's making here is that your behaviour will flow from your faith. That's the connection. Your faith and your life. Your doctrine and your lifestyle. When he gets to the end of chapter 2, he confirms that. He says in verse 15, after listing all these practical things, we're going to look at them over the next few weeks, he then says at the end, verse 15, these then are the things you should teach. So there's a practical teaching that is grounded in and flows from the gospel. Now, this is true for Paul. You'll know that a lot of the New Testament was written by Paul. Letters to different churches in different places. And often, he'll write a letter, Dear so-and-so, it's, it's Paul, I'm just writing to you. And then he spends some chapters talking about theology. He points their eyes to God and to Jesus and to the gospel and to the cross, to the spirit. And then, in the second half of the letter... He spells out, given that all this is true, this then is how you should live. That's the pattern in most of his letters. Doctrine and theology, and then practical behaviour. He does it the other way around here. In chapter 2, he's very practical. And then in verse 11, he gives them the basis for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ. You should live like this because these things are true. There's a connection that your life should match your faith. I was watching, as I said, the royal wedding... Uh, the other day, as, as we all were, and there's a part in the service where the man who's doing the wedding says, What God has joined together, let no man separate. Man and wife. What God has joined together, let no man separate. This is an example of exactly that. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Your, your beliefs and your behaviour must go together. And the problem is that we try to separate our beliefs and our lifestyle. Last time we referred to the pagan culture in Crete at the time when Paul's writing this to Titus. And we referred to the Gnostics, or Gnostics, you remember, and they believed that the physical world was bad and the spiritual world was good. And that's a belief that shaped how they lived. In some cases, the idea developed into a kind of split lifestyle. The real spiritual part of me is inherently good, but my body's evil. It doesn't really matter how I live then, it's just my naughty body's fault. So a little indulgence here and there won't matter. Because the body's evil and it can never taint the real me, which is spiritual and pure. You see what happened there? It's very subtle. Separation of belief and behaviour. We don't have Gnostics now in one sense, but we have people who believe that kind of thing. I can't help myself. 
It's not really my fault. God surely won't hold me account for something that I can't help doing, will he? He knows I mean well, even if I don't achieve it. And what's happening is there's an attempt to separate. I can believe this stuff, but it doesn't really matter how I live. But what God has joined together, you can't separate in that way. The gospel over and over again puts back together what we try to separate. It even happens in our modern culture. John Lennon, one of the Beatles, wrote a very famous song called Imagine. Our alarm clock went off this morning, the radio came on, and this song came on. And I thought, oh, I'll preach on this today. Just as I was waking up. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us, and the world will be as one. I want to separate religion and heaven and all that stuff. We can all be one, but we don't need all that stuff. Do you see what he was doing? Separating Christian ethics from Christian foundations. It's very subtle. What you believe will affect how you live. And that's exactly what Paul says in in chapter 2 and verse 11. We looked at it. It is the grace of God that brings salvation that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live upright lives in this present age. This letter has a theme running all the way through it, and it's all about doing good. Paul says at the the end of chapter 1 that the false teachers are unfit for doing anything good. In chapter 2, verse 7, just follow these with me. Chapter 2, verse 7, he says to Titus, In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. Chapter 2, verse 14. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Chapter 3, verse 1. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready, to do whatever is good. Chapter 3, verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying, I want you to stress these things, Titus, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to what? Doing what is good. Chapter 3, verse 14. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what? What is good. Can you see the theme in this letter? You miss that when you don't kind of pick them up one by one. Paul isn't separating faith and behaviour. What he's saying is, these people need to know truth so that the fruit of goodness will grow in their lives. You need content, you need truth, you need God's teaching so that fruit will grow from salvation in your life. The Christian gospel will always change lives. Can I just give you an illustration? I was just reading this commentary on Titus. Do you know the story of the mutiny on the bounty? Do you know that story? It's a famous film. Captain Bly? (laughs) Yeah, it's a good film. You should watch it. 1787. Captain Bly sailed to the Pacific. And they were sailing home again. 
they'd had an amazing time on this beautiful paradise island and on the way home he woke up one morning to face a mutiny the crew had little to look forward to back in England and they were bewitched with the sin and the leisure of the Pacific Islands so they rounded up the captain and all the officers and they cut them adrift in a lifeboat and then they sailed the main ship back to the Pacific Islands where they just left and there was a man called Fletcher Christian ironically who led them it was a mutiny I think it's been made into at least two or three films they basically um, when they got back to the island they persuaded some of the women to come with them and they set out again and they found another island called Pitcairn and it seemed like another paradise they took all they could from the ship set it on fire and sunk it so that no one would know they were there and then they let loose all their passions they were free to do whatever they wished but of course because the human heart is sinful it turned into ten years of virtual hell they began to make alcohol from the plants that grew there men spent days even weeks completely drunk fighting and killing broke out they became like animals in their behaviour one man went mad and jumped off a cliff ungodliness reigned and eventually there were only two of the original mutineers left one man was called Edward Young and the other Alexander Smith Edward Young was quite elderly and he became ill but these two men persisted in their wayward behaviour so much that one night the women and children seized their guns and barricaded themselves off in part of the island because they did not want any more from these wicked men one day Young found the old ship's Bible from the original ship, the Bounty. Smith couldn't read and strangely, in one of their most sober moments, Young began to teach him to read from the Bible. They started to learn reading the Bible from Genesis and saw that God is holy and that they were sinners. They were gripped. The reading of the Bible began to affect them. They realised their lives were an offence to God and began to change it took time to read the children on the island noticed the change first not too long afterwards Young died but Smith read on he came to the New Testament and something remarkable happened to him as he read of Jesus this is what he himself wrote I had been working like a mole for years and suddenly it was as if the doors flew wide open and I saw the light I met God and the burden of my sin rolled away and I found new life. From that moment on, everything on Pitcairn Island changed. Smith began to read the Bible to the women and children. And interestingly, 18 years after the original mutiny in 1805, a ship from Boston came across Pitcairn Island. The captain came ashore and there he found a community of people who were godly. They had a love and a peace about them which the captain had never seen before. When he got back to Boston he reported that in all his travels he had never met a people who were so good and gracious. Is that not incredible? It works. The gospel, the grace of God. It's exactly what Paul says here in verse 11 and 12 and 13. The gospel changes lives and produces goodness. What you believe will affect how 
you live. You can claim to know God, but if your life contradicts that, there's a strong possibility that you have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> that, Paul said that elsewhere in the New Testament. He says it here in chapter 1, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. There's a great danger when Christians try to separate ethics and theology. When churches try to emphasise morality but neglect the gospel, you can't have one without the other. Sometimes, even in churches, we like the morality, the ethics, the respect and all that stuff, but theology is a bit narrow. It seems a bit restrictive. It offends people. Let's try to be loving and all get on together, but not stress so much the theology. That is a slippery slope. And eventually the morality goes out the window, as well as the theology. One writer, fairly recently, a Christian teacher, uh, wrote this. I went to the website of a church. They had a doctrinal statement, but to get to it, you had to read a disclaimer that says that doctrine really isn't important. And on another part of their website, they say, while we do have a brief statement of beliefs, we prefer not to over-theologize, but rather to allow the community of faith to interpret the scriptures and apply its lessons to themselves. At today's service, for example, the attenders were encouraged to share a poem, song, picture, sculpture, dance, photo, video, celebrating one of the Beatitudes. What they're saying, in effect, is we're not really into doctrine, and if you're hung up with that stuff, we feel sorry for you. And if you can get over it, we'll show you how you can experience Jesus with us. Whatever that is, it's not the gospel. You cannot neglect the gospel and expect fruit to grow. There's a connection between those two. Just very quickly, there is an objection here. That someone might raise and the objection might go like this these qualities that Paul mentions in chapter 2 are not distinctively Christian qualities there are people who live in this world who are like this but are not Christian and there are also people in this world who are not Christians who admire greatly these sorts of qualities. So you can't say that this is distinctively Christian. Can you? Well, it is very true uh, that there are good ethics in this world. We should be thankful for that. But I want to make sure that we don't miss the connection that Paul makes here. You cannot separate what God is doing together. You cannot separate the practical ethics in verses 2 to 10 from what Paul says in verses 11 and 12 and 13 and 14. What Paul is saying is these are Christian ethics because they have a particular source, they have a particular motivation, there's a particular standard and a particular purpose you should live in this way because of who God is. 
because of what he has done for you. And you live this way because of his help and strength by his spirit. And you do it ultimately to bring glory and honour to him. So it is specifically Christian. I'd love to spend more time with you thinking through that implication. In the New Testament there are so many places where Paul says, Forgive one another. Why? Because God in Christ forgave you. Be generous with the stuff you have. Why? Because Jesus, who was rich, became poor for your sakes. All the way through the New Testament. Even Jesus said, love one another. Why? Because I have loved you. John chapter 13 verse 34. So my question to you this morning is, when we think about this connection, if I was to ask you, what is the basis on which you live your life? Why do you live the way you do? What is the source and the foundation for your ethics in your life? If Paul were here, he would say, it's because I'm a Christian. That's what he would say. That's where my ethics come from. My life is built on that foundation. I'm not just being this way because it's nice. I'm living this way because Jesus has saved me. I didn't deserve it. In fact, Paul himself tells us, Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, the life I live now I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Can you say that? Well, let's get back to Titus. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. It's a command. There's a contrast. And there's a great connection here. That our Christian lives should be based on Christian theology. Just very briefly, I want to close with one last C. Concern. Titus has been sent here to establish an effective church. The culture on Crete was very messed up. The church is dysfunctional. You know, in the Old Testament, there's a book called Judges. Some of you will know. The very last book, the very last verse of the book of Judges says, "In those days, Israel had no king; everyone did as he saw fit." That's a good summary of our modern culture, isn't it? As well as Crete. Everyone just does what they think is right in their own eyes. There's no absolutes. That's the kind of culture Titus is going into. And what is Paul's great concern? Let me show you uh, in chapter 2 here. In verse 5 of chapter 2, he says that younger women should be trained to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled and pure to be busy at home to be kind and to be subject to husbands why? so that no one will malign the word of God there's one reason verse 8 in, in your teaching show integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. There's another reason. Verse 10. Teach slaves not to steal from their masters, but to show they can be trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. We've, we've come back to where we started. The gospel spreads by the proclamation of truth, but it is so crucial that Christian people live lives that match what they profess to believe. That's Paul's big concern. 
He doesn't want people maligning God's words. Have you heard these Christians, what they're teaching? And you'll you never guess what he did. When, when there's a gap there between our faith and our behaviour, the gospel loses its power. Our lives should make the teaching about God attractive. It's not a substitute for gospel teaching, but our lives should back up what we say. You've got to use words, but if your life doesn't back it up. You know, sometimes I fear that the reason we don't use words and, and witness to our faith is because we know that our lives don't match up. And it silences us because we're ashamed. Does your life make Christianity look attractive? Or could your life cause other people to mock the gospel? You can't please everyone. And there will always be those who reject the gospel and criticise Christians unfairly. But Paul says that our behaviour should be such that people who do that will in the end be ashamed. Because there's nothing really substantial to say. Titus, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. It's a command, there's a contrast, there's a connection, there's a great concern. We make a very high priority in this church on teaching the Bible. I didn't make it up. The Bible's fantastic, God's word to us. It changes lives. And we want to give time to studying it and learning from it together. Will we be a church that is teachable? Learning and growing and maturing and developing. And will we be a church that proclaims both with our words and by our lives the wonderful life-changing power of this great and amazing gospel? Well, I pray that it will be so. To God's glory. Amen.